Well, today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we're getting, we are at the heart of the story where Jesus offers himself on the cross for our sins. So let me open us in prayer and we'll look at this, this wonderful passage from the Gospel of Luke together. Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning as our Savior, the one who shed his blood for us. And as we study your cross this morning and look into it, we, we know that this is the real reason we're even here this morning to worship you is because of what you've done for us. For your cross is the basis of our justification. You died in our place for our sins. You were raised for our justification and our eternal life. You granted us your spirit to seal us as your own and to cause us to walk faithfully in this new life. Your cross is also the basis of our continuing fellowship with you, for the scriptures say that if we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive them. And your cross is also the way of life that we knew we would enter into when we became a follower, a disciple of yours. And our life would, in many ways, mirror and pattern your own, Lord Jesus, and it would be our privilege and honor to be so treated by the world. And we pray that you, as you were vindicated in glory, that you too would receive even more glory from our own lives as we serve you. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're getting to the, we are at that point in Luke where we see the innocent one crucified this morning. You know, and as Christians, we take delight in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. To us, that sounds fairly normal. But have you ever considered that that might appear bizarre to people, that we take delight in the death of Jesus Christ? I mean, to some people, that is just so sadistic, grotesque, even eerie. I mean, something to be avoided. Why would you want to be a part of that group of people? To others, it might seem quite self-serving that you would want somebody else to die in your place. I mean, how selfish of you. To others, yet, it might seem that this is the oddest religion ever invented, sort of a weird kind of a God, and isn't that a little too harsh on sin? I mean, why did Jesus, when we think about why did he have to die such a horrible and shameful death? I mean, couldn't he have just died like a normal death, maybe in old age or from sickness or natural causes? I mean, why is it important that his death happened the way it happened with such violence and disgrace? Of course, we know it's to fulfill the scriptures, for God had written that it would be this way, because by his death and the way he died, God would show his righteousness most openly and most gloriously in this manner. Because of the magnitude of our sin that would be then shown, and the excellence of God's wrath. Yes, the excellence of God's wrath towards sin would be shown on that cross. And because justice would have to be done. Because of the heinous nature of our sin, its shame, and the need for justice against it. And so, then our true and desperate need for salvation can only come from God. It can't come from ourselves. And if you're like many people today, or maybe the doubt sometimes into your mind, and you even ask the question yourself, are we really that bad? Yes, we are. All of us are sinful at the very core of our being and rebellious against 
heaven. Because the measurement of badness is not what we think or other people think, but it's measured against the very holiness of God. We do not give God the glory He deserves. We don't worship Him perfectly. We do not live in acceptable righteousness. We don't reflect His holiness perfectly. And so we're supposed to be repulsed when we get to these passages in the gospel accounts where we see the sufferings and the very cross of Jesus Christ. It's impossible to look at the treatment of Jesus, knowing who he is and what he's about, and hoping in him for salvation, and then think that somehow in one own, our own goodness that we're good enough to get to heaven. That would be serious self-delusion and self-righteousness, showing ourselves even worse than the people in the passage we're going to look at today. We should have a nauseated response to the unjust treatment of Jesus, and it should be our disposition then toward our own sinfulness before God. And only then can we find a true knowledge of salvation. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 23, starting in verse 26. I printed it for you in your bullets, and if you just want to follow along there, but I'll read the text for us this morning. And then we'll take a look at the four scenes. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming where they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. So hopefully we'll come to cherish our salvation all the more this morning as we reflect upon the innocent one who is crucified because he saves those 
who trust in him. And Luke is presenting to us the crucifixion really in four scenes this morning. The first one is the journey to Skull Hill in verses 26 to 32. The second scene that we observe are the crucifixion pains in verses 33 to 38. Then we see a conversion of a criminal in verses 39 to 43. And finally, some commentaries on his death are given in verses 44 to 49. So as we begin this story, the first scene, we're on this journey to Skull Hill, and on the journey we meet some people. And the first person we meet is Simon of Cyrene. As they were led him away, it says, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. You know, Jesus has been abused more than any other condemned criminal. His repeated abuse and his scourging that we looked at over the last few weeks, he's not even physically fit enough to carry his cross to his own crucifixion. And so he walks in front while Simon carries Jesus' cross being forcibly conscripted by the soldiers. We don't know much about this Simon, other than what's stated pretty much here. He's from Cyrene, a Greek city in what is today the coastal area of Libya. And by his name, he's most likely Jewish, and we learn from Mark's gospel, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, about whom we don't know much either. But why is he mentioned in the story? It's because he adds to the story. And what he adds is he tells us by his very presence the true condition of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why he's in the story. And probably because at the time of the writing, he'd become known to the church, as well as Alexander and Rufus probably having become Christians. And then there are a multitude of mourners. Only Luke records this part in verses 27 to 32. There followed him a great multitude of the people of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood's green, what will happen when it's dry? So these, this crucifixion crowd had a lot of people in it. It had curious onlookers, of course. It had many sadistic voyeurs. And those that were concerned, and then those like this group who are professional mourners. And Jesus is going to speak kindly to the women in that group of professional mourners. And they would follow the crucified, the condemned, and provide some dignity to their death. And they would often offer drugs for their pain, And both of these actions were considered actions of great piety and of mercy toward condemned criminals. But Jesus turns their lamenting over him into a lamenting for themselves, for Jerusalem itself. He tells the women that they should be more concerned for themselves and their loved ones than concerned for him, really. These are startling words. These are the kind of words that only come from somebody like Jesus, the self-sacrifice and love as well as words of judgment and warning here. You know, many proverbs to bless women would include the notion of granting children. That's how you would bless someone. But the time of judgment that Jesus is talking about that's coming very soon, it's going to be so harsh as to reverse the common proverb. And instead, the blessed women will be those who have no children because they don't have to watch them suffer and die. 
That's what's going to happen to this nation. The fear of the great wrath of God would be so great that they would fear and want death itself. The apostasy of Israel had led to this point, and Jesus quotes Hosea 10.8 in this passage. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And that apostasy was about 750 years prior to this one. And as we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, it had reached a point at which God would judge them again. And as you know, the same situation would repeat itself or will repeat itself on the final day with all of the world. And we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, calling onto the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's Jesus. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, first of all, Jesus is speaking to them very directly about the fall of Jerusalem that would be taking place shortly, as just he had done earlier at his triumphal entry. If you flip back in your Bibles to Luke 19, 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then his teaching later on in Luke 21, 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill that which is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You see, Jesus' proverb here speaks of fire and how it burns the green wood or the wet wood or the living wood. He's talking about himself. And then in comparison, how the fire is going to rage over the brown, over the dry, over the dead wood, which would be them. If the Romans were this wicked with Jesus, how much worse will they be against the Jewish people in just a matter of years? If God didn't spare Jesus, how much more is he going to judge unrepentant ones on the final day of wrath? Well, the journey to Skull Hill closes in verse 32 with the words, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Luke emphasizes again that Jesus is the innocent one of these three. He's not a real criminal. He's the innocent one who is crucified, and he saves those who trust in him. And then we get to the second scene, which are the crucifixion pains, starting in verse 33, and we see a great contrast where Jesus absolves his crucifiers, and people take the opportunity to mock him in his pain. So in verses 33 to 34 we read, And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. So it's really with very simple, restrained words that Luke records the actual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Somewhat surprising. The place of the crucifixion was just outside the city, to the north, on a hill shaped like a skull, off of the main road. And so in Greek, it's Cranion, in Hebrew, Golgotha, in Latin, Calvaria, right? Calvaria, Calvary, Calvary Church, it's what we're named after. This was a public place where passers-by could mock criminals and be reminded forever that Rome controls your life. We're all probably familiar with crucifixion. It was a cruel and degrading means of punishment. A person could be tied to a wooden stake or nailed to one. It was a slow death where if you were tied, your circulation would be cut off, but you could be nailed for a quicker one. More blood loss, break legs if necessary. And then just left to die over a period of days up on that cross. So the victim would be attached to a cross beam and lifted up, hoisted up, slammed into a notch on the post, and then given a perch for his feet to prolong his agony. And there are many types of crosses. The main ones were St. Andrew's cross, which is the X, uh, St. Anthony's, which is the T, and then the traditional cross that we're used to with the placard on it. It was a means of death that the Persians actually invented and many other ancient Near Eastern peoples used, but the Romans perfected the pain. And it was considered at the time the ultimate in cruelty and degradation, perhaps it still is, and it was reserved by them for the worst offenders, the lowliest of criminals, and Roman citizens were exempt from it unless Caesar himself ordered it. The Jews eventually outlawed it even from their own practice because of its shamefulness. And so we see that it would indicate a person is outside the covenant people of God, and so where is Jesus being crucified? Outside the city. The details of the crucifixion are well known, and so the gospel writers don't give them because the people who read the gospels originally knew them. It's not their focus anyway, but rather the focus is on the significance of the attendant circumstances and the theology. The gospel is not about the physical pain alone, but it's about the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Isaiah 53, the prophet wrote, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, so the physical pain pictures for us the spiritual agony that's going on, and then they both actually picture for us hell itself and what Jesus actually saved us from. Then we get to verse 34, the great contrast. While this is going on, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He asks God the Father to release these people from this particular crime that they're committing against the Son of God. Those who have been ignorantly involved, leaders, the soldiers, Jews and Romans that are perpetrating the worst crime in the history of humanity. And the soldiers then finish their crucifixion proper. 
and begin dividing Jesus' clothes that they had stripped off of him again, leaving him naked, or perhaps with a loincloth because of Jewish sensibilities. But their levity is entertaining to them, and they further mock him. And it's just a sign, it's a way to continually show the powerlessness of the one being crucified. John's gospel makes this very clear, and it's one of his themes. Well, Jesus, you see here, he's living out his own teaching. Earlier in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, we read, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. But then the mocking of the Savior continues in verse 35 to 38. The people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription set over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. So the people watch, and many mock too at him, while the Jewish religious leaders are scoffing at Jesus being the Savior. They announce that he made the claim that he saved other people, or that he could save them, and that he healed them, but yet can he even save and heal himself? And since he doesn't do it, since he can't do it, well, then he must not be who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the divine son. I mean, what a joke. The soldiers mock Jesus too by cruelly offering him sour wine in his pain. Could be the same or the different as the standard narcotic that would have been given to crucified criminals. And they mock him as king of the Jews again, having had their fun with him and mocking the Jewish people themselves. But what we see is that Jesus fulfills the Psalms. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69, if you have it. There's a pew Bible in front of you. Verse 20, and see how specific this prophecy is fulfilled. But, you know, all of Psalm 69 is all in the story of the gospel. But you'll have to read that on your own. That'll take you a while. But look at verse 20, it's very important. Jesus fulfills the psalm, 69, 20. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for my food, and they gave me sour wine to drink. Luke closes off the second scene, by noting that the plaque that Pilate had placed over Jesus' head, the sign declares that Jesus is guilty of treason. And it's another maneuver of Pilate, his last revenge, if you remember, he hates the Jewish people. And he can mock them, mock their Messiah, mock their thoughts about who the Messiah would be, and just anger the religious leaders. Again, the Gospel of John records this theme. But you know, as we look at this scene and we think about that placard that's put up there, the king, we think, well, that sign is more true than his tormentors understood. Because Jesus really was sitting on a throne of types as he sat on that throne of the cross because that would be his glory as he spoke about it. 
because he would save himself in his resurrection, and he would save others eternally as they put their faith in him. And so when we look upon the crucifixion pains of Jesus, we see the innocent one who is crucified, yes, but we see the one who also saves those who trust in him. Well, the third scene is about the conversion of a criminal. Again, this passage is unique to Luke's gospel in verses 39 to 43. It says, one of the criminals who are hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So Matthew and Mark tell us, though, that actually the way this began was that both of the criminals were mocking and railing at Jesus. Maybe they were political zealots who'd lost the cause themselves and mocked Jesus as another failure to get rid of the Romans. But eventually, you see, it dawns on one of the criminals who Jesus really is and who he really is. And he rebukes the other criminal for not fearing God as he should, especially in the face of death and this particular death, because they know more judgment's coming. He states that they're guilty and they're getting what they deserve, and this Jesus, he's the innocent one. Has this dawned on you yet? Your own death and a holy, healthy fear of God? Has God opened your eyes to who Jesus is and the hope there is in him to escape the judgment that you actually deserve? You see, one criminal actually got saved that day. The passage continues in verse 30 to 42. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the repentant criminal pleads for salvation from Jesus. He believes Jesus is the son of God who will be entering his kingdom and returning in power. And Jesus promises this man that even that day he would join him in paradise with God. You see, because upon death, one's soul immediately goes to paradise, to heaven, or to hell. And it's later that the body is resurrected to enhance either the punishment in hell or the glories of heaven. And notice here, most importantly of all perhaps, Jesus controls who enters paradise. This conversion of this criminal in this story, many Christians love to tell the story of the thief on the cross. It's one of our favorite stories, probably for many reasons, but it offers great hope And it reminds us that God's mercy is always ready for those who will simply put their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And so we can identify with the thief in his initial reaction to Jesus that, you know, this Jesus isn't anything special. But then we also identify with him later on in his realizations that this Jesus is exactly the Jesus I need to be forgiven for my sins. The thief on the cross offers hope to anyone and to everyone, and we love to share this hope. So Luke would have us look at this innocent one and notice how he saves those who trust him, even that criminal. Well, the final scene are commentaries on his death, the signs that take place at his death and the responses of the people. 
And so we read in verses 44 to 46, Now it was about the sixth hour, that is noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So, As I mentioned, darkness would come upon the land from noon to three. It's a sign of judgment from God. First of all, concerning the unrighteousness of what's actually happening, that these people are crucifying the eternal Son of God. How God did it, we don't know, whether he used some of his natural means of his creation or whether he did something unique in that time frame. But it reminds us of other Bible stories for sure. The first one that comes to mind is the plague of darkness upon the Egyptians, God's judgment. The second thing that darkness should remind us of, that all the prophecies in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord, especially those that come from Amos and Joel, because the darkness is the sign of the beginning of the end. Zephaniah 1.15 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That day began. On that day. Darkness was also a sign of judgment upon Jesus that God's wrath abided on him for the sin that he was bearing. God the Father was actually judging our sins borne by Jesus on the cross. And that's why he would cry out and quote Psalm 22 as well My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cost of our salvation. The wrath of God the Father upon God the Son in his death. Then there's a second sign after the darkness, and that's the temple curtain, whether it was the inner one or the outer one. We don't know for sure. Being torn in two from top to bottom. It's a sign of judgment on the one hand, judgment upon the temple, judgment upon the people for their apostasy and their rejection of the Messiah. But it's also a judgment for what he would be doing in the history of of redemption, because it would be a sign as well that he was opening up access to God, to all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that access is through him and him alone. And then Jesus prays his committal prayer of faith, and he voluntarily gives up his life. But first he prayed, as it's recorded in John's Gospel, it is finished. Full meaning is he accomplished his work, and then with faith in his resurrection glory that's coming, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And ever since then, Christians die with a similar strong hope in the Lord. Then there's the response of the people because of the circumstances in verses 47 to 49. Because of the darkness that they saw and the hearing about the temple curtain. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The centurion in charge of the crucifixion. He proclaims the theme that we have been talking about in Luke's gospel all along. Jesus is the innocent one. And he praised God. It's probably a statement of more than he was actually even doing. Not conscious of all the saving realities that were going on, but it's divine commentary on the matter 
that this is the innocent one given for the guilty. Then the crowd who came to watch a spectacle that day left wailing in grief, realizing probably that Jesus really was the innocent one. The purposeful contrast with the mourners at the beginning of the story, perhaps maybe they're some of the same people and they're starting to realize that the people who really needed mercy was exactly like Jesus said. It was they themselves who needed the mercy. And then there are Jesus' friends and the women who watched it all. We don't know who all's there for sure. John, maybe Peter. But that's it for the twelve. I mean, Judas hanged himself, and the rest fled. Friends here is a broad term, refers to many. And we see this referring here specifically even to the female followers of Jesus. They're named in the other gospel accounts. They were all looking on from a distance, perhaps because of fear, maybe because they're so sad, maybe for modesty's sake, maybe for safety, maybe just to separate themselves. But the episode is brought to a conclusion by the presence of these many women who had been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. You know, earlier in Luke, we saw them all, and how they ministered to him and with him, and here we see them now at the end. They're faithful disciples to the bitter end and examples of courageous discipleship. So Luke recounts these many commentaries. They're all divine commentaries on Jesus' death. Darkness is a commentary of God's judgment against those people and God's judgment for our sin. It's a commentary on salvation. The curtain being torn in two is a commentary on Jesus' death of judgment, but yet of access to God. The centurion's word, innocent, is a commentary by God on what actually took place and who died. The wailing crowd is a commentary on who really needs mercy. The watching disciples are a commentary as we anticipate what is God going to do next. You know, Luke opened our eyes to the crucifixion in this passage, and he makes it impossible for the reader to just remain disinterested as some kind of an observer of a historical account. The cross event of Jesus Christ is the core of Christianity, and it implies that we, and implores us to put our trust in Jesus to receive salvation. He's the innocent one crucified in our place. He's not just innocent, as we've talked about, of political instigation. He's not just innocent of some kind of a religious error. He's not innocent of, in some historical legal sense, but he's innocent in the ultimate sense as the righteous son of God sacrificed for the guilty ones. I wonder how many of us wanted to come to church today to hear about the crucifixion. Maybe you did. Some probably did not. It's difficult to hear about because it's, it's just full of vileness, and we know that it really is the result of our own vileness, but it's the real reason we gather as Christians to celebrate every week. The truth by which we approach God every week, we're the ones that are forgiven because Jesus so willingly, lovingly, laid down his life in our place, and we receive God's grace and his mercy through our faith. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity this morning that we had to look at your cross a little bit more, to see how you would fulfill prophecy, to see how you would bear the actual wrath of God for our sins and free us from them, to see so much about how to be freed, about how to be a true follower of yours. And we pray that you continue to bless us this week in our meditations, especially 
in this passage and in Psalm 69 as we understand more of who you are. Amen.